the incarnation. That is the word that we use to describe what you might, which I definitely, and, and I believe you should too, consider to be the greatest event of human history. That's when God became a man in order to relate to us, in order to save us. You know, my wife, Rosemary, and I, um, before we were married, we worked together in a United Nations refugee camp in Hungary, and uh, we did that for three years. And our work there it was uh, primarily evangelistic, although it was partly humanitarian, and uh, the majority of people in this camp, the majority of people we were working with on a daily basis were Muslim, and during our time there, we had the privilege of leading many of these people to uh, living faith in Jesus Christ, but in talking with Muslims about Christianity, uh, it was interesting, you know, there are a few things that they found very foreign and very surprising about how we as Christians view God and about what the Bible teaches about God. For example, for Muslim people, uh, God is distant, right? So he's somewhere, he's out there in the cosmos, he's far, far away, keeping an eye on things, but he's very distant. Not only is he distant, but he's also kind of aloof, you might say, right? So he's, he's cold, he's detached, he doesn't get emotionally involved with anything, any person or anything that goes on down here on earth. And so for Muslims, they, they don't have this view of God that he loves them personally or that he has a plan for their life individually. In fact, I remember on several occasions telling Muslim people that God loves them and some of them even laughed in my face. They found that idea so ridiculous. The, the idea that you could have a personal relationship with God, they found it bizarre and, and ridiculous that God would even care that much or that God would stoop to that level of having a relationship with small, stinky, little old you, right? In their opinion, God is a, a cold, detached judge somewhere far, far away. And, and what he's doing is he's placing all your good deeds and your bad deeds on a scale. And if, you're, if at the end of the day, you know, your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then you'll be blessed and ultimately you get to go to heaven. And if you want to tip the scale in your favor, well, they have a system for that too. They do that through observing religious ordinances and they, they refer to those as the five pillars of Islam. And if you do those things, you can tip the scales in your favor and God will bless you and you will go to heaven. But the idea that God loves you, the idea that God would want a relationship with you, that idea is so foreign, so different to them. But when you look at the pages of the Bible, when you open it up and start reading, that is exactly what you find, that God doesn't just know about you. He didn't just kind of set things in motion and then check out. No, he loves you and he's intimately concerned with the details of your life. And he isn't a distant, far away, detached judge somewhere out there in the cosmos, but he is near, intimately close to you. And the ultimate expression of these things is found in what we call the Incarnation. That moment in history in which God came to us, when God became one of us, when God took on human flesh, walked the same ground that we walk on, he breathed the same air that we breathe, and in every way he experienced the full human experience. He experienced firsthand the joys and the trials of this life. He experienced the blessings and the hardships. He laughed, he cried, he experienced temptation. Even more practically, he experienced family dynamics. Now, he didn't have a mother-in-law to deal with, which 
might be part of what uh, helped him to be sinless, but he grew up with brothers and sisters, which had to be hard enough by itself, right? So he experienced community dynamics. He grew up uh, relating to other kids, going to school, going to church or synagogue and learning to trade, learning to work with his hands. God did those things. He became like us in every way so that he might save us completely. He became one of us in order to relate to us. He became one of us in order to save us. The incarnation is the proof that God is not distant. God is not aloof, but he loves you. He is not a detached judge, but he is one who cares so much that you would be his, that you would be with him, that he came to earth in order to do what only he could do, what was necessary to save you and make you his. That's how much he cares. You know, this week, uh, being Christmas and all, I was reflecting on the incarnation and the fact that God didn't just become a man, but God became a baby, right? I mean, he could have theoretically just kind of shown up 30 years old with a beard and just let's go for it, right? But he didn't. He was born as a baby, You know, I think a lot of times people, when they think about Jesus, they have this kind of picture in their mind that he's this kind of super person, right, that has superpowers, and that's why he was able to do all the things he did. That's why he was able to be sinless, because he had superpowers that you don't have. But but here's what the Bible teaches about Jesus. It says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, that Jesus emptied himself. That means that he laid aside his glory, the power that was his as God. Though he never stopped being God, in essence, for that time that he was on earth, he became like us in every way. And yet he lived sinlessly, and he did everything he did by the power of the Holy Spirit and through dependence on the Father. That's incredible. And when you understand that, you begin to understand just how deeply God loves you. That he would trade omnipotence for impotence. That he would trade a crown of glory for a crown of thorns. That he would trade a throne for a cross. He's not aloof. That's the proof. He's not detached. The incarnation is the proof of just how much God overwhelmingly is full of love and concern for you. So for the month of December, we have been looking at the story of the incarnation as told by Matthew in the Gospel of Matthew. He's one of Jesus' disciples. And what's so interesting about how Matthew tells this story is that he starts out by taking us on a journey through Jesus' family tree. So the first verse of the Gospel of Matthew, which is also, by the way, the first verse in the New Testament, it says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Let me tell you something that's interesting about that phrase. There it says the word genealogy. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That word genealogy is a pretty straightforward word, right? I mean, we all know what a genealogy is. But you know this too, right? That the Bible, this part of the Bible was written originally in Greek. In the Greek language, this word that we have translated a genealogy is actually the word genesis, which means origin or beginning. And of course, Genesis is the name of the first book of the Bible. So this is the Genesis of Jesus Christ. And and what that means, what that represents to us is this, that with this first verse of the New Testament, this is saying this, that within the person of Jesus Christ comes a new beginning. 
in the person of Jesus Christ, that his coming marks a new beginning for the world and for you personally, it can be a new beginning. And that is the message of the gospel, that with the coming of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, what it means for you and me personally is that in him we can have a new beginning. And, and what we've been looking at in this series is the five women who are given special mention here in Jesus' genealogy by Matthew. It's interesting, uh, when you look at these five women, uh, what we have seen so far is that in their stories, we find the stories of, of women who were sinners, pagans, prostitutes, adulterers, people who had bad reputations. And what each of them have in common is that in Jesus Christ, they each got a new direction, a new beginning, a new identity. He changed the course of their lives. He even used their past mistakes for his purposes and for his glory. That's what redemption is all about. It's about new beginnings. And that is what is available to each and every one of us as well in Jesus Christ. So let's pick up where we left off last Sunday. And uh, it's going to be in chapter 1 verse 6. It says this. Jesse was the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of of Uriah. That's the title of today's message, by the way, The Wife of Uriah. Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11. You know, this is actually a chapter that we studied about six or seven weeks ago in our study through 2 Samuel, uh, which we're going to pick up, by the way, next week in January. So this brings us right back to where we left off. Interestingly, of the five women who are mentioned in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, all four, uh, four of them, four of five, are mentioned by name. There's only one who is not mentioned by name, and that is this woman here, the wife of Uriah, right? So, so Tamar and Rahab, he mentions them by name. Ruth and Mary, they're mentioned by name. But if for some reason, this woman here, her name is not even mentioned. She is only called the wife of Uriah. Now, why would Matthew do that? Let's take a look at the story and see if we can find out. I'll read the first five verses of chapter 11 in 2 Samuel. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. In the time of the year when the kings go out to battle, David, who was a king, decided to stay at home. So if there were two objects that really characterized David's life for us, we'd have to say that they were the harp and the sling. The harp, right? It was the, with the harp that he sang and he wrote beautiful songs of worship to the Lord. It was with the sling that he stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with Goliath, the Philistine giant, in faith that God could use even him to do God's will. It was holding that sling as a shepherd that David learned what it means to trust God, to take care of him as David faced wild animals out in the wilderness. 
It was during those times that David came to understand that the Lord was his shepherd, that God cared for him and provided for him and protected him just like a shepherd cares for his sheep. It was holding the harp that David wrote psalms of praise to the Lord and put his prayers into music and taught other people to pray and seek God in a personal way. But here we see David at a time in his life where he's neither holding a sling nor holding a harp. He's neither fighting nor worshiping. And he has put himself in a situation where he is surrounded by temptation and he's completely lacking in accountability. That's a terrible combination, by the way. So in David, as we see here, he committed adultery. And what God wants us to know is that David didn't fall into sin. This wasn't like a big accident, right? But David walked into sin slowly, one wretched step at a time intentionally he passed by on the way hundreds of warning signs you know with flashing lights telling him stop get off this highway get off this train you can do it turn around but David ignored those warning signs and he walked into this situation one step at a time he shouldn't have been at home in the first place and because he was where he shouldn't have been, he saw something that he shouldn't have seen. But rather than looking away, he fixed his gaze upon it. And he could have stopped there too, but he went even further. He wanted to know who she was. He thought, hey, maybe she's single, right? Maybe she's single. Maybe she's available. But when David found out who this woman was, it turned out she's not single at all. She's not available at all. She's married. In fact, she's not just married to anyone. She's married to one of David's most trusted companions, a man named Uriah. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, we read about David's mighty men and about how amongst the mighty men, there was this group that was known as the Thirty. And Uriah was a member of the 30, right? These were the inner circle, the leaders among the men. These were the people who were closest to David. They were trusted because they had proved themselves to be men of valor. They were full of faith and they were faithful men. You know, there are two details of this story which are, are kind of particularly interesting. One, one is this, that Uriah and his wife didn't have any kids yet. So in that culture, for these people, having kids was the number one priority as soon as you got married. So that definitely stands out. How is it that Uriah and his wife don't have any children yet? Secondly, if Uriah and David are close friends, then how is it that David doesn't recognize Uriah's wife? Well, here's, here's the answer to kind of, this is what the conclusion that most people make, and it seems to be pretty reasonable, is this, that Uriah and his wife had only recently gotten married. They were newlyweds, and then Uriah got called off to war shortly after they were married, and that's why David doesn't recognize her, because she's new to town. That's why they don't have any kids yet. Either way, though, finding out that this woman was his friend's wife, that should have stopped everything right there. I mean, this is not a single woman. It's not an available woman. This is another man's wife, and not just any man. This is David's companion, someone close to him. But David continued to entertain this temptation, and he asked his servants for information about her, and then he asked them to bring her to him. Probably he told them, hey, I just want to meet her. You know, maybe she's new in town. I just want to get to know her. You know, maybe we could be great friends. You know, Uriah is my friend. I just want to meet his wife. But of course, that's not what David was really after. And as a result of this whole thing, Uriah's wife becomes pregnant with David's child. 
What's David going to do? This is quite the conundrum, right? This is quite the problem David's created for himself. Now, the right thing for David to do would be to cut his losses and just confess what he's done and ask for forgiveness from Uriah, from Bathsheba, from the people of Israel. If he does that, though, here's the thing. He might get in trouble because you see the penalty for adultery in that society was death. And even if the people don't put him to death, well, what will people think about him if they find out that he did something like this? I mean, he'll lose everybody's respect. Everybody knows him as the man after God's own heart, as the writer of the Psalms. They'll all think that he's a hypocrite. So David starts thinking, you know, is there any way that I could cover this up? Is there any way that I could keep people from finding out about this? Any way I could keep this secret a secret? So David comes up with a plan. He sends a messenger and they bring Uriah back from the front lines of the battle. And when Uriah comes, David tries to send Uriah home and give him some alone time with his wife. But much to David's dismay, Uriah refuses to go home. His sense of duty to his men who are still out in the field of battle is so strong that he refuses to enjoy the comforts of home until they can all enjoy it together. And so then David says, okay, well, it's time for plan B. He tries to get Uriah really drunk, but even that doesn't work. Uriah refuses to go home. David's only got one option now, right? Come clean and tell the truth. Repent and ask for forgiveness. Unless, unless, of course, something were to happen to Uriah while he was out in battle. I mean, it is a battle. People do die in battle. I mean, that would be kind of convenient now, wouldn't it, if something were to happen, maybe an accident, you know, and well, David is the king, and he could maybe help to make sure that an accident happens. That would kind of fix everything now, wouldn't it? So in, here in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we read the story of how David sent a message to Joab, the commander of the army, instructing him to put Uriah out on the front line and then pull back, to retreat, so that Uriah would be kind of just hanging out there and he would get killed, but make it look like an accident. And that's what happened. Everything went according to plan. David got away with it. And then he married Uriah's widow, took him in, you know, said, hey, I'm just taking in my friend's widow and you know she's pregnant poor thing so he takes in his friend's widow and then you know rather than people finding out about what he's done and how wicked what he did was he comes out of it looking like a hero David fooled everybody didn't he except for God of course and and David knew that God had seen everything and 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 for a whole year David was tormented by the secrets that he was holding on to these skeletons in his closet And after a year, God spoke to David through the prophet Nathan and said, David, your secret's not a secret. I know what you did last summer, right? And David finally broke down and confessed and repented. But at this point, he's done so much that he can't undo what he's done, right? I mean, no matter how bad he feels about this, no matter how many times he says he's sorry, he can't bring Uriah back from the grave. He can't, you know, his Bathsheba already had a baby. He can't undo that. He's already married her. What's he supposed to do? Is he supposed to divorce her? That would just be one more bad thing on a whole pile of bad things. You know, the child that David had with Uriah's wife, the child got sick, and even though David prayed and fasted, the child didn't recover. But then we read this in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Towards the end of the chapter, it says this, verse 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. 
You know, if you read through uh, 2 Samuel chapters 11 and chapter 12, you're going to notice something that the author does there very intentionally. Over and over, Bathsheba is not referred to by her name. She's not. Uh, Her own name is only mentioned twice in, in the introduction of who she is and then here at the end. Over and over, as she's referred to continually, she's only referred to as the wife of Uriah. Now, why would he do that? Well, it's clear, it's to drive it into our minds, to pound it into our heads, that what David is doing here is so terribly wrong. We cannot forget what's going on here. Don't forget, this is not okay. This is a a terrible thing David is doing. This is another man's wife. And even after Uriah's dead, the author continues to call her the wife of Uriah. It's only after David has confessed his sin and repented and turned to the Lord and and given up trying to hide this that the author finally refers to her here in verse 24 as Bathsheba, the wife of David. And so in the Gospel of Matthew, in the genealogy of Jesus, Matthew doesn't refer to Bathsheba by her name. Matthew refers to her as the wife of Uriah. Now, why would that be? It's because Matthew wants to remind us of what happened, of how David took this man's wife and then killed that man. David wants us to remember the story. He wants us to remember the situation. Why? Because what what Matthew is doing here in this genealogy, with all five of these women that he points out, he's pointing out the stories of redemption. And what greater story of redemption is there than the story of David and Bathsheba? This was a relationship that never should have happened. This was a relationship that began in sin and as it continued it only got deeper and deeper and more entangled in this web of sin and lies. This relationship was founded and based on adultery, murder, and lies. How could God bless something like that? Yet out of this relationship comes this child, Solomon. And we're told that Solomon was particularly loved by the Lord. And out of all of David's sons, Solomon is the one who succeeds David as king of Israel. Solomon is the one who will build the temple in Jerusalem. And Solomon is the one through whom God will fulfill his promise to David about the Messiah. You see, this genealogy, about, uh, uh, this genealogy of Jesus, it brings us back to these promises that God made throughout the centuries you see that's why Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is the direct descendant of Abraham and the direct descendant of David it takes us back to this series of promises that God made to people starting all the way back in Genesis the the first book of the Bible there in Genesis in Genesis chapter 3 we read about how the very first human beings rebelled against God And sin came into the world and it brought with it all kinds of stuff. Suffering and cruelty and sickness and evil and ultimately it brought death. And God made a promise then there in Genesis chapter 3. Right when sin was coming into the world, God made a promise that one day he would do something about this. One day he was working a plan and one day he was going to send them a person who would be like no other person who had ever lived. He called him the seed of a woman. The seed of the woman, meaning that this person would be born of a woman, but not of an earthly biological father. Why? Because God would be his father. I guess you could say, in other words, that he would be the son of God. And the son of God would come and he would conquer over evil and he would set people free from the curse of sin and death. He would trample the head of Satan. And so then time went on and there was this man named Abram. 
And God spoke to Abram and made him a promise, said, Abram, if you will take my hand and walk with me, if you'll make me Lord of your life and you'll go wherever I tell you to go, wherever I lead you, then I will bless you in a very special way. I will make your descendants into a great nation. And one of your descendants in particular will be the one, the seed, through whom everyone in the world will be blessed. All nations of the world will be blessed. He will be the Savior, the Messiah, the Son of God. And then as time went on, Abraham's family tree branched out in all kinds of different directions. But God focuses, the Bible focuses on one particular branch of Abraham's family. They weren't royal blood. They weren't of nobility. No, these were simple people. These were farmers and shepherds. But one of these shepherds in particular ended up becoming a king. He's the one we've been talking about. His name was David. And God made David a promise. David wanted to build a temple for God. But God told him, no, David, I've, I've got my reasons, but I don't want you to do that for me. But I see your heart, and I appreciate that you want to do that for me. I love that. So here's what I'm going to do for you, David. You're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house, a dynasty, a, a royal dynasty. And from that dynasty will come one who will be the one. He will not just be a king. He will be the king of kings. The, the one I promised back in the Garden of Eden, the one I promised to Abraham, the Son of God, the Savior, the Messiah, the King of Kings. At that point, David had six sons when that promise happened. David had six sons. And you can imagine that David's looking at these little boys growing up and wondering which one of them is going to succeed him as king. And more importantly, which one of them will be the one who is chosen by God to be the one through whom the Messiah, the Savior, comes into the world. He probably would have never guessed at that point in his life that the promise would be fulfilled through a son who was not yet born, who would be the result of an adulterous affair. But again, how could God bring something that good out of something this bad? That turning point, the defining moment that changed everything was when David stopped trying to cover up his sin and he confessed his sin and he repented. You see, repentance is a game changer. That's what God wants you to know. In your life, repentance opens the door for change and for everything to be different. You know, it would be from David's deepest mistake. It would be from David's most heinous sin that God would bring beauty and life not just to David, but to the world. Do you see that? God would take this relationship, which was a mistake, and he would give it a new beginning. God would redeem this relationship and use it for good. And from the tangled strands of David's sin, God would bring salvation to the world. You know what this means for you and I? It means this, that God not only redeems your soul, he not only redeems your life, but God also redeems relationships. And I, I wonder if there's any of you hearing this today who are in a relationship that didn't start out the way that it should have. Maybe you have a relationship now which has been damaged as a result of sin, either yours or someone else's or most likely a mixture of the two. The promise of the gospel is for you. The hope of Jesus Christ is for you. That if you will turn to the Lord, if you will give it all to him, he can bring beauty out of ashes, he can bring life out of death, and he can give you a new beginning. Jesus' resurrection, do you see that? That the resurrection of Jesus, that is the ultimate expression of why God came into this earth. Why God 
did that act that we call the incarnation. The ultimate expression of why is found in the resurrection, that that he brought blessing out of curse and he brought life out of death and he wants to do that for you today. Why does Matthew point out that Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah? He doesn't even call her by her name. He continues to call her by this name, the wife of Uriah. What is the point of that? Is he trying to rub David's nose in this? Still after all these years? No, I don't believe that's why. I believe that Matthew refers to Bathsheba as the wife of Uriah in order to show off just how amazing, how incredible, how stunning, how staggering, how astounding the grace of God is. That God would choose broken people in a broken situation like this one and he would save it and he would take what was meant for evil and he would use it for good for the salvation of the world. You know, God doesn't work through perfect people. And that should be encouraging to all of us because there aren't any of us who are perfect people. God chooses to work through broken vessels. You know that? He puts the light of his glory into earthen vessels. That's who we are. But we're not just earthen vessels. We're busted up broken vessels. But you know why he puts his, the light of his glory in busted up broken vessels? Because from the cracks, from the holes in those vessels, his light can escape. The light of his glory can shine forth in unique and different ways from the cracks and from the holes in these earthen vessels. And so God puts his glory, the light of his glory in earthen vessels so that it can shine out to the world, so that it can give him glory. Why would God choose to be born out of a family line that comes from Solomon? the son whose parents began their relationship in adultery and lies and murder. It's because that wasn't the end of the story. You know that? That's what's glorious about this story. That wasn't the end of the story. It didn't just end there in a mess of sin. No, the end of this story was repentance. It was forgiveness. It was grace and it was restoration. And ultimately it was blessing. And God chose to bring salvation into the world through David and Bathsheba in order to showcase his grace to the world. In order to make a statement that no matter where you've been or what you've done, God came to this world to save sinners. And God came to this world to give a new beginning. In order to make that statement that if there was grace for them, if God can redeem them, if God can repurpose that, Well, then what about you? What about you? Do you think God's grace is available for you? If it was available for them, do you think it's available for you? Do you think that if God can redeem them, do you think he can redeem your life? Can he give you a new beginning? Can he give you a bright future in him? Can God use your life for good and for his purposes? Absolutely. That's the message of this story. All you must do is turn to him, put your life in his hands, all the good and all the bad, and say, Lord, I'm yours. I'm surprised that you even want this, Lord, but I give it all to you. All of the folly, all of the error, all all whatever redeeming qualities I may have, Lord, I give it all to you, warts and all, for you to use for your purposes and for your glory. If you will do that, he will redeem your life from the pit. He will be for you the resurrection and the life, both now and forevermore. Amen? Let's go ahead and stand and pray. Lord, we thank you.
that you, Jesus, you are the resurrection and the life. And we thank you that the ultimate message of the Bible is resurrection. And that in you, there is resurrection that is plentiful. There is redemption that is plentiful. Lord, thank you for your grace. And this morning, collectively, I dare to say on behalf of all of us that as we look at this story, we, we must say, Lord, thank you that there was grace for them and, and I believe that there is grace for me. If there was redemption for them, I believe there's redemption available to me. And so, Lord, I take everything I have and like David, I stop hiding any of my secret sins, the things I've been trying to cover up and keep in the closet, Lord, and I just bring them and lay them at your feet. And I ask you to forgive me. I confess these things to you. And Lord, I ask that you would take them and that you would use them for your glory and your purposes, that you would redeem my life from the pit and use it for your glory, that you would be to me the resurrection and the life, now and forever. Lord, thank you that you became one of us in order to relate to us, in order to love us. Thank you that you traded all of the glory for everything that you got here. And, and thank you that you did it because you love us. May we go out this morning knowing that you are king, and that you love us. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.